I actually wanted to bring it up on a podcast because when we, you know, when we chatted initially and when I like <laughs> messaged you on Instagram, situation was very different, right? Russia and Ukraine were at peace, quote unquote, like there was tension, but that tension was since 2014. So there was nothing new that happened before we got, you know, a plan to record a podcast. But now that we actually got to the podcast part, there is a full scale war in there. And I was just thinking about the, about it yesterday, like that changed over the course of a month. It's It's been like five weeks since Russia's invasion. And I was just sitting there and reflecting. I'm like, oh my God, that podcast can take completely different direction <laughs> now. When I caught up with the guest of this episode, Maria, earlier this year for a pre-recording catch-up, we talked about all the things that are normally covered on this podcast. Personal stories, family background, connection with cultural identity, and belonging. But in the month or so since that conversation, an entire war has broken out, instigated by the leader of the country Maria was born and raised in. In this episode, I talk to Maria about what it means to her to be Russian-born in the context of what's happening now, but also in the context of growing up in Russia with part Arab and part Azeri heritage. Why does she struggle so much with her identity, and what has she been trying to unpack in the days since Russia invaded Ukraine? Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Maria. Do you want to start by telling a little bit about yourself? So I was born... In Russia, but I'm actually not like Russian. I have Arab and Azeri heritage. Um, and I moved to New Zealand when I was 17 to study at the university. So I've been here for four years now. I turned four years somewhere in February. So congratulations. First thank of all. you. <laughs> Still surviving, thriving and going forward. Amazing. So your dad is actually Syrian, um, mm. but your mom was also born and raised in Russia, right? Yeah, so my mom, she I, she was born in Baku, which is the capital of Azerbaijan, but um, her dad, so my granddad, he is Russian from Siberia, and then my grandma is from Baku, so she's like, um, I think she, ethnically, she's like Persian, because a lot of people from Iran escaped to Azerbaijan at some point, but then like, she met my granddad and then like they married, had kids. And yeah, my mom was born in Baku, but she grew up in Russia. Um, yeah. And then my dad, he's like, his heritage is like in Syria all the way. I'm actually the first, the first person to be born like outside of Syria. So yeah, he's like Arab all the way. <laughs> yeah. Tell me more about your relationship with your uh, Arab side. Uh, Cause in our pre talks, we did talk a bit about this and sort of, um, your journey with that so far? Yeah, I would say that I have a very interesting relationship with my like sides <laughs> in general, because I guess Russia is very, very like Western in a way. Um, I forgot the exact English word, but it's, you know, how like people only see one like color or one culture. It's like mono something, mono. Homogenous. Homogenous. Yes, mm. that's the word. So Russia is very much homogenous. Like if you walk down the street, you would never see like a BIPOC person or, you know, like a black person. Like black people is almost like a, like a myth in Russia. You never ever see them. There's probably like less than 1% of them in Russia. 
so yeah, I guess when you're born into like a biracial family or you identify as a biracial kid, it's pretty hard to talk about your heritage in Russia because like people would just look down on you or like ask you very uncomfortable questions. Um, Why would they look down on you? Because I don't want to like enforce the, um, you know, the like the racial stereotypes we have in Russia, but I guess over the course of time, there were a lot of migrants from different, different countries that looked different to, you know, standard white people. Um, and so in Russia, people like usually look down on those migrants and then like they don't treat them nicely overall. So when you say that your parents are from like migrant background or they are, for example, Arab, like in my case, people tend to be a bit uncomfortable or like ask very weird questions and I don't know, like don't treat you nicely overall. Mm. What kind of questions? Like questions that enforce like racial stereotypes, like whether I remember when I was in school, like people would ask me if I like eat pork or they would like ask me to eat pork when I was in school and they would like be super, super like weird about it. They would almost like try and bet on me eating pork and they would try to like encourage me to eat it or mm, that's um, bullying. Yeah, I know. It's not nice at all. And they would like ask me about like cultural attire, like, you know, how there are like a lot of hijabis um, that are also Arabs, so they're Muslim and Arab. So they would ask me like if I ever like were forced to wear it or like if if like I'm forced to not wear it at school, you know, because like I'm not Muslim, but I am Arab. So, yeah, there was just like overall ignorance of people mm. like assuming that if you're Arab, you like you have to be Muslim and vice versa. Um, yeah, it's just, it was very challenging to navigate. But yeah, I guess coming back to like your super like original early question. <laughs> a very broad question. Um, <laughs> yeah, very broad. Um, I think overall my experience was to not disclose if I'm like, you know, where I belong and like if I'm biracial or if I'm mixed, if I'm Arab or Azeri, because with disclosing that, people would ask you all sorts of questions and it would be very uncomfortable. And so over the course of time, my identity kind of like dissolved and I didn't know who I am, who I was. Mm. Um, yeah. um, it's interesting because you, for a large part of your life, you identified quite strongly with your Arab side, right? Mm. And you still do or? Yeah, Um I think it tuned down over the course of time. There was a period of time where I was like, you know, learning Arabic and being very invested into culture. I wanted to go study in um, in Dubai, which is not very Arab in itself, but it's like closer to the Arab Peninsula than any other country, right? So there was a part of time where I definitely wanted to be a part of diaspora and I was like fighting extra hard to get in because I don't speak Arabic I don't speak my own language so yeah I identified quite strongly and I could always feel how I'm a bit like different than other Russians I I'm like too Arab to be Russian and too Russian to be Arab I'm like in a limbo hmm. um but I think at this point of time like as we speak I tuned down a little bit because of like family circumstances and also I'm quite integrated in Aotearoa, I'd say. And I think a part of it as well is that I don't have a lot of Arab friends. So it's quite hard to um, like find information or to practice your Arabic or to even like, I don't know, feel like you belong. So you mentioned earlier about feeling too Arab 
for one place, but not enough Arab for another place. So, um, what is what does being Arab look like to you, or looked like to you? Very good question. I would start with saying that speaking the language is definitely the most important part of being and belonging to a diaspora because with language you can't really understand the culture unless you speak and understand the language because they're like all of those like sayings and you know like proverbs and like you just you just like want to belong and you want to speak the language you want to like name the dishes their own like native names rather than latinized english names or something so yeah it's just small part like that but I was learning Arabic for a while, but I didn't continue and I, I still don't know why. I didn't feel like I was getting anywhere with the language. And also like on top of the language, I'd say like belonging to like a group of friends that can like teach you some words or yeah, just like show you around, celebrate holidays with you. Um, yeah. Did your, I, did your dad not do those things? No, not really. I don't know, like, what was his reasoning? Um, because he's, like, super proud of, like, Syria, and he's, like, you know, quite a patriot <laughs> in that way. Um, but somehow he didn't teach me anything. And he's quite, like, whitewashed in that way. He's very assimilated into Russian, like, culture. And I think he lost that part of him, like, a couple of, you know, decades back when he was, like, marrying my mom and all of that. So... Um, yeah, he like lost that that flame <laughs> inside of him. So he never taught me anything. Oh, that's really sad because I'm sure that he and his family would have so many stories um, yeah. from Syria. Uh, do you know why he let that part of him go? I'm not entirely sure. I always assumed at some it was some sort of family drama because, like in Arab families, like you always have some sort of. <laughs> When dispute someone's uncle like called someone wrong names, and then you have like that like decade of family like fighting. Um, I don't know for sure, and I know that our family in Syria had quite a long history. They were all settled in one like tiny town called Kara. My great granddad was a poet. I actually have like his book. He was writing like poems and little. Ooh. Um, yeah, like little stories in the Arabic. Um, he was quite famous. He was published in like the like top hundred poets in Arab, like in Arab Peninsula. Wow. Um, yeah, he was quite famous. So I don't know why I wasn't taught any of that. I had to like discover it myself rather than you know being taught and being proud of it from when I was a kid. How did you um, discover it? I found his poem at home so my dad had like a cutout um of like a little poem and I couldn't read Arabic so I was like oh like what's that and then he told me the entire story and he brought like a book from Syria with his poems to give to me but like you know what I mean it just felt so like forced because I had to like ask him myself and I had to like fight for that information rather than like being introduced to it like a normal kid Yeah, it's interesting because I also have sort of a similar experience with my parents. Like, it's almost like trying to get blood out of a stone sometimes (laughs) when you're trying to learn more about their their backgrounds and their stories. Yeah. But I think a part of it is maybe a lot of it is entrenched in so much trauma as well. Yeah, maybe like he he just didn't want to remember that part of his like childhood and his family and his parents because... Like, Arabs are quite conservative, so I can only imagine what they had to go through at their time 
of like land division and being like colonized by all of those European countries like France and the Netherlands and stuff. So yeah, maybe there is some sort of like trauma to it, but then mm. yeah, I just, it's a shame that I missed out on some of that, you know? Are there many other Arabs in Russia? Like, was there a big community or were you mostly surrounded by what? <laughs> white people I don't, yeah. know, I, I don't know um yeah because I also know that Russians are quite diverse I know you said they weren't but isn't there like Siberia and like mm. like the yeah. little areas bordering other countries where there is maybe a bit more diversity yeah um definitely Russia itself is very diverse because basically like Russian like country when it was existing like back a few hundreds back they went on exploration to like Siberia exploration like quote-unquote but it was like invasion of like all of those little sovereign territories um and basically getting them under the Russian governance so yeah Russians or those that like have a Russian passport now and like live under modern Russia. They're actually like indigenous people. And I don't think a lot of people talk about it because they're very much Asian looking in a way that they're like, if their face structure, their like eye shape, their skin color is very different to like European Russians that you would see on social media or like all those influencers, actors or whatever. So no one's talking about indigenous Russians that are so like, struct of their rights right now um but back in the day like a few hundred years back they were like little sovereign territories i'm not too sure about the history side of things i think they're just it was back from um like ottoman empire and back from Mm -hmm. like mongolian um mongol like not empire i want to say like khan um I don't know those Genghis words. Genghis Khan. Yeah, like, like Genghis Khan times. Tried um, to take over the world. <laughs> yeah. So back from those times, I think those indigenous Russians might must have been part of those entities back in the day. Sorry, I don't know the exact like historical terminology in Rus- in English. Um, but yeah, so indigenous Russians themselves are very, very different. But when you get to Moscow, where I'm from, which is like the capital, it has like 17 million people and it's like very packed. You only ever see like European like settler Russians. Um, mm. in a sense, like they're all like white, like their skin is shiny, their <laughs> hair is blonde, and they have blue eyes that can pierce through you. And you just like feel so out of place because like everything I have is quite dark. Like I have like black hair and stuff. So yeah. And, and that's something that we had a little chat about as well, because I asked you whether Russians ever questioned where you were, f- where you were from and air quotes, yeah. um, because of your dark hair, for example. Yeah. And you, you said that you often got mistaken for being Jewish. Yeah, I did. It was so funny, actually, because I think I mentioned it like to someone else the other day. Um, Russia itself is quite anti-Semitic and Semitic, not in a sense anti-Jewish, but Semites like as a population, as like peninsula, as people from the same, like that area. So they can be like anti-Syrian, anti-Arab, anti-BIPOC in general, I guess. And so people would usually ask me if I'm Jewish, like in a sense of like categorize me. And I was like, no, I'm not Jewish. I'm Arab. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's like even worse. Like, oh, you're oh God. <laughs> Yeah, so in their in their eyes, being Arab was like something that you like don't really want to be, and you'd rather be Jewish than you'd be Arab. But I can't really choose, can I? So, where do you think that 
negativity comes from? Oh, so many reasons. I, you know, genuinely speaking, I think there's a lot of like Islamophobia, but like intentional pushed Islamophobia by like Western media and by, you know, United States especially. And even though people are scared of Muslims, they don't realize that Muslims can be in other countries rather than from Arab Peninsula. They can be from like the Philippines. There's huge Muslim population in Indonesia, for example. What about the entire like, you know, like African continent? Um, there is just so many Muslims in the world, but I think, I think because of ignorance, people choose to be Islamophobic, but then they also choose to be like Arab phobic in a sense. But it's definitely because of you know, like intentional like Islamophobia through like past 30 years, past 20 years. Mm. Something that I noticed as well is you don't really identify really as Russian. Like you say that you're born and raised in Russia, you grew up in Russia, but you don't really say that you're Russian. Mm. Can you talk me through that? Like, why do you not associate yourself with the place that you grew up in? And what does it mean to you? in the context of everything that's happening at the moment, I know that so many Russians are opposed to mm. Putin invading Ukraine and s starting this war. So in terms of that, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I was honestly quite surprised because in Russia, there is quite a popular opinion that a lot of like old school post-Soviet type of like, you know, tenure population tend to be for Putin and they tend to like say oh like back in the day we had it worse there was like food shortages people starved to death which is true but somehow it made them settle for something that's been going on in Russia for the past 22 years actually not so fun of a fact Putin has been in charge or like ruling Russia Ever since before I was born, he actually came to power a couple of months before I was born. So my entire life, I've never seen another president um, of my country. And when I tell this to like Kiwis, <laughs> they tend to be so shocked because they're like, but what about elections? But why did you choose him? And it's quite hard to explain the entire process of corruption in Russia. But yes, anyways... A lot of people are opposed right now. Like I see on Facebook, I see people going on protests in Russia. And what most Western activists don't realize is that if you go to a protest in Russia, in Moscow, and you get caught by police forces, you face prison. Like you be, you'll be put in prison. There are no lawyers that can help you. There is no legislation that will be on your side. It's not democratic. It's not a democratic country. So you'll be put in prison and you'll be there like, you know, for a couple of years or for the rest of your life. We still don't know because it's just happening, right? And so I see all of those brave people on social media going out and opposing Putin, knowing that they will face prison if they get caught. Like, I went to a protest, like, here in Auckland to Altair Square. Complete safety. Sun was shining. I went and bought myself a bottle of water because I was dehydrated. And at the same time, like, people in Russia are facing prison for doing the same. And that's... That's yeah. mind-blowing. Yeah, you know? I, I, yeah, it is. And I think so many people don't realize that. Yeah. And the fact that, like, police here actually escort you <laughs> in your protests. Like, they, they make sure that the roads are clear for you to do your protests. Yes. 
Yes. Did you see that story about the, uh, I don't know if she was like a journalist or she was a producer, um, but she, like the news was happening and she had like a sign protesting Putin and she like came on air and then she was taken away and then we didn't know what would happen to her. But I think she's been released, but a lot of people are saying how, because it's so public, like they didn't want to just make her disappear. Like they wanted to make it seem like they were being fair. Yep. Um, she's been, she's fine at the moment, like as of a couple of days back, but she's been like fined like a very huge amount of money that I don't think a lot of Russians would normally have considering, you know, like the conversion rate has been following and all of that. But yeah, she's fine now. And it's actually super huge because the channel that she works on as an editor, it's actually the main government sponsored channel. It's like what like my parents would go to to watch the latest news. Like, you know, like everything is happening at that channel. So like her brave act was like it took me by surprise because like I w- I didn't know what would happen to her. Um, you know, no one would. Um, yeah, it's like honestly, I felt like that was so brave because doesn't she have like kids and a family? Yeah, yeah. And she was risking her own life to get this message across. Yeah, yeah, and I really appreciated how the message also had like some English wording because um, what I find most challenging is that when like Russian activists try to get information out there. English does not get taught very well in Russia. Like, we mostly just learn, like, Russian as a language. And then the fact that she, like, thought of it in her brave act and put an English message out there allowed that message to spread. And so, like, you know it, for example, but you didn't necessarily know about any other acts that were just, like, written in Russian. So, yeah, I really, I I thought it was very well, like, organized and very well thought despite the situation that her life was under risk. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, going on or going back to your thoughts and feelings with regards to everything that's happening. Yeah, Uh, lots of thoughts, honestly. Don't know how to cope, really. But um, if we recorded that podcast like before um, the war started, the invasion, I would have said something along the lines of, oh, well... Like, yeah, I was born in Russia, but maybe I'm just still on my way, like, to discover my identity and, like, like I don't know, come to terms <laughs> with the fact that I was born in Russia and not in, like, New Zealand, um, which is an amazing place. And, yeah, I would have said something along the lines of that. But now that, you know, there's, like, an invasion and I'm just completely disgusted <laughs> by the fact that they decided to do it, like, the government, not even Russian people, like, don't get me wrong, just just five individuals that decided to ruin everyone's lives. Um, I would say that I'm just glad I'm not in Russia anymore. And I'm like among 5% of privileged people who got to escape before when there was an opportunity. But yeah, I tend to drift more and more away from the fact that, you know, I'm like Russian or have like some like 25% of Siberian heritage or something I just tend to say that yep I was born there but now I'm here so let's start from 2017 onwards (laughs) (laughs) yeah something like that yeah do you feel any sadness I don't know if that's the right word but do you feel anything in terms of erasing that part of who you are yeah yeah I think erasing 17 years of your life is pretty is a pretty sad process but 
at the end of the day, like I feel remorse and I don't know if it's the right word. I think I'm grieving is probably the closest that I'm feeling right now in terms of feelings. Because I think a lot of great stuff happened during those 17 years. But the fact that my brain and my mental health, like overall, can't cope with what's happening right now, I would rather like erase those memories alongside all of the bad things that happened back then and now and just start over. And I think it's not, it's not normal. Like people shouldn't feel that because of their government, but it's just the state I'm at right now and I can't do anything. Like, you know, I'm going to therapy and stuff, but it's not helping much because therapy in New Zealand is still very much like Westernized, you know? Um, But yeah, I'm definitely griefing. I think a lot of great stuff happened back then. Like I had great friends and um, like I miss certain moments of like high school and events and stuff. But now I'm here. So in a way I'm starting over. Yeah, Yeah, it's definitely a process, isn't it? Do you still have family in Russia? Yeah, yeah. All of my whānau is back then, like my mom, my dad, my endless uncles, my niece, like all of them are just there. Um, and yeah, I wish they they came here when they had a chance, but I think they're pretty tenured, um, like they're towards the tenured part of the population, so they'd rather be there now. Mm. Yeah. Do, you, do you have any worries or fears around what will happen after. So we don't really know how it's going to end or when it's going to end, but war has such a devastating effect on everyone who's involved. And obviously like the Ukrainians are suffering tremendously. Um, But I think there's also going to be a huge, tremendous impact on Russians too. Yeah. I was thinking about it the other day. I had a chat with one of my friends like over Instagram post or something. So we just talked about how everyone's talking about the Ukrainians and I empathize like completely with them. Being a refugee is not, you know, it's not by choice. So yeah, like 5 million Ukrainians already escaped to like European countries. Even New Zealand is like extending visas and welcoming people. But what I can't help think about is my Russian friends are getting affected. So my family is getting affected. And while I empathize with refugees, I'm also being mindful of the fact that not a lot of Russians chose the war either. Like, as I said, they go to protest, they risk their lives. Um, like people, like people can't escape because no one's welcoming Russians at the moment. Everyone's welcoming Ukrainians. And while there is, of course, a priority, I also think it's unfair by the media to pose Russians as a threat because we're just as opposed to the current situation as, you know, as any like European activist would be. And I just can't help and think about it and think about the fact that how do they escape? You know, how do we guarantee a safe life for them when Russian borders have been closed? Like airspace has been closed. No one can leave the country. So it's basically on lockdown now. Um, yeah. Like, I, I don't want to, like, pre- talk about predicting the end result. But, for example, if Russia lost, there would probably be sanctions put on to Russia and, like, things like demilita- demilitarization. And mm. there will probably be shortages of all kinds, especially food. If This yeah. is just going by what happened after, like, World War II, for example. Mm. And all of that has such a huge impact 
on the civilians who didn't choose the war, as you said before. Yeah. Yeah. I think this entire like invasion and war is impacting like civilians more than anything because I don't know if you know, but anyone like who is male and is under age of 60 was forced to stay like in the country. They can't leave because they have to fight Ukrainians. Same thing actually happened in Ukraine. Anyone under the age of 60 cannot leave Ukraine, like even if they're a father, a brother, like even like a granddad, um, they can't leave Ukraine. They have to fight and stay Russians. Uh, sorry, stay and fight Russians. So this entire situation is taking the most hit on civilians. That's one of the saddest things to me because I yeah. just, I put myself in the shoes of like a mother or a wife and just having to yeah. say goodbye to like your son or your husband or brother yeah. and not knowing if you'll ever see them again. Yeah, you like you don't know and there is like no way of knowing who disappeared and who was killed in the process. And I don't know if you like actually know that part of the story, but Russian soldiers, there was like a video circulating a couple of like weeks back. Russian soldiers who were in training like for the army, like recruited into the army, they were not told that they're going to be fighting like civilians and Ukrainian soldiers. They were taught that they were going on a training into like a empty like cornfield or something and so when they arrived and crossed the border some of the russians have ukrainian heritage like we're not completely separate we were like you know under soviet union and there's like thousands of years of history going back um and when they arrived to ukraine they're like what the heck like this is not a cornfield like do we have to fight for real so to people who are saying that like soldiers are just as guilty they're actually not because they were lied to and they were taught like completely like some miracle like things that are not real it, it, didn't some of them also get told like they were gonna go fight nazis or something yeah that's the um how do i say that's like the agenda that's getting pushed on tv that for saying the word war on TV, you're facing prison as well. So you're not allowed to name things as they are in reality. They, you're not allowed to call a war a war. You'll be facing prison. So what they've been saying on TV is that it's a special operation to clear Ukraine of, of like Nazi fighters. But that's, that's you know, it's like propaganda. Like, I don't even know yeah. how to call it. That yeah, yeah, they've been taught that they're fighting like Nazis, which is... Which is a bit weird. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a similar rhetoric to like previous wars where basically these men get lied to, um, yeah. to so that they fight and die for their country. But it ends up being such a pointless death. Yeah. Yeah, especially when they don't know what they're like really doing. I think soldiers are realizing like step by step, but... There is also like you have to consider like a point like in your brain where you have to come to terms with reality or like if you keep like lying to yourself to escape that reality. Like it's pretty hard. Like I'm not a psychiatrist, but I wouldn't want to be like in their shoes like ever to discover that your government is lying to you while you're like killing like tens of people every day. Exactly. Like lying to you and manipulating you to their advantage. Yeah. That's exactly what's happening. That's awful. Yeah, it's tragic overall. And I empathize with like Ukraine, but I also empathize with civilians in Russia that didn't choose for things to turn out that way. And people are like escaping Russia, like through France, they're traveling to like Armenia and like all of those countries like below Russia in the south. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's 
millions of lives are ruined, which is pretty tragic to realize. So yeah, like how I was saying, if we recorded that podcast like a month ago, it would have like taken very, very different direction, right? But now that things are changed, um, it's crazy. Yeah, I would have had to get you back on and re-record it because <laughs> like the situation is so drastically different. So we talked a bit about your dad's side. What about your mum's side? So you mentioned a bit about um, how there might be like Persian heritage as well in your mum's side so you could actually be like mostly like middle eastern (laughs) yeah yeah um i wouldn't usually when people ask me if i'm like middle eastern or something i just say that i'm from like west asia because i don't think actually iran is a part of like western like colonial term middle east i think middle east what they mean by it is just like that peninsula like saudi arabia and all of that but yeah, I just tend to say that I'm from, um, identify as like a West, West Asian. Um, Do people want to know what you mean when you say West Asian? <laughs> it's, it's an interesting thing you ask because they like, they just get confused. Like, what do you mean by West Asia? Like define your region. <laughs> like someone actually asked me to define my region and I'm like, look, how, how do I define it? Like, it's just an area on the map and, yeah, I think with those like Western understanding of borders and like divisions of lands by colonial powers, there's a lot of confusion around that area. So I just tend to say, oh, I'm from West Asia, but you're welcome to ask me more questions if you want to. Um, Do you feel like people within those regions see themselves more as, for example, West Asians rather than Middle Easterns? Because we we also talked about this before, like about how you actually don't view Russia as like European in the way that a lot of people do. Yeah. Yeah, I have, I don't know if I share like the common understanding of geography, but I always find people be so defensive when I say Russia is actually not Europe, like geographically or mentally. We're not there. Um, yeah, a lot of Russians would probably disagree with me, but I, yeah, I tend to share my own like opinions about it. Um, I tend to say Russia is in Asia because geographically, the common understanding among Russians is that anything before Ural Mountains, like Ural, Ural Mountains, not sure how to pronounce them in English. How do you in spell Russian, it? Um, it's like Ural, so U R A L. Yeah. yeah. I I don't know how to pronounce them in English, but yeah, Ural Mountains, anything like on the left of it, if you look at the map, is Europe, and anything on the right, which is like 80% of the country, is Siberia, Kamchatka, all of that like East Russia, and that's Asia. So 80% of our country is in Asia. Mentally, we're very conservative, we're very much family-oriented, and we just share a lot of like mental traits with for example, North Asia, like Caucasian area, and then like Central Asia, and then like like even like China and Japan, because we're all like pretty close together. Mentally, we're very much Asian as well. So I just tend to say we're from Asia. And in terms of like Middle East, if I say Middle East as a colonial term, people will fight to death <laughs> to prove me wrong. <laughs> So, mm. yeah, I, I don't know. It's my understanding of it, and I tend to stick with it for, you know, like, 
like political purposes and stuff. I'm very much anti-colonial, so I don't want to say Middle East. Because, yeah. Yeah. It's almost like Middle East has negative connotation nowadays anyway. So why don't we say West Asia? That's- yeah, I like that. Um, yeah. I, I don't feel that a lot of people are there yet, though. Like, I yeah. feel like Middle East is still a very commonly used term. Yeah, I, I also agree. I don't think we're there yet. But yeah, I overall I just refer to it as West Asia because it even sounds nicer. So yeah, it does. Yeah. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. going to the question I asked you earlier mm. around Russians looking at you and being like, "Where you like? What's your background? Like, mm. where are you actually from?" Kind of thing. Do you also get it the other way? So do people look at you and say, "Oh, you're you're too white to be Arab." Um, yes and no. I, surprisingly, or I guess not surprisingly, ironically, I get that feedback from white people. I don't get that feedback from Arabs themselves. I think Arabs themselves are very welcoming. And I had like a few chats with like Syrians in New Zealand. But somehow when I talk like about my heritage, we're like, just like people with European ancestry, like Pakeha white people, they tend to be like so like categorical in a sense. They like almost want to want to assign me based on their understanding of the world, which I find very funny because they are not a part of diaspora to be that defensive. They also mostly most of the time don't have any sort of like degree, like geography degree to assign me anywhere. Um, but yeah, ironically, I only get it from white people ever. Um, but yeah, I definitely heard it a few times saying, oh, but do you, like, do you speak Arabic? You don't have an Arabic accent. Like, why don't you wear, like, hijab? Are you practicing? Do you eat pork? Like, there are just so many questions that I face. Yeah, I guess it comes out of ignorance, right? Yeah. Yeah, most most of the times. I don't think they mean any harm. I don't think they want to intentionally make you feel like you don't belong. But it's just sometimes the questions are so blunt mm. and I find it hilarious. Mm, mm. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, in terms of finding your new home, then in Aotearoa, how has that process been? Have you found it overall a good experience assimilating into the culture and society here? Um, yes and no. I think I'm way better with people who are also migrants in Aotearoa, but have the as their goal, they want to stay in the country and they want to like assimilate and integrate, same as me. I don't think I vibe well with like Kiwis, Kiwis, like Pakeha Kiwis. My partner is Pakeha, but with him, I found it very easy to talk about challenging topics and very easy to be vulnerable um, and just like say that I'm struggling or like my mental health isn't doing great. Just yesterday, he actually was helping me find some women of color psychiatrists. So he's one of the few very open-minded Pakeha people that I know. Um, but apart from that, I didn't find myself like vibing mm. with them. I don't know if you had the same experience because I remember you mentioned you have a Pakeha partner as well. So I wonder if it's a universal <laughs> experience. <laughs> Yeah, I think I get what you mean. Just culturally, I think we're just very different. Uh, I mean, not me and my partner, but yes, culturally we're different. But like in general, especially if you come from more of like an Eastern culture and society, the Western way of living 
is quite different. Um, And also here there is just quite a culture of like, I don't know how to properly describe it. Like, especially with men, for example, just like bro-y, like not in touch with your emotions. (laughs) Generalizing here, very, very general. But the culture thing is just very different. Yeah, I think I know what you mean about men, eh? Like they're all, they have like, also generalizing, I know there are some great folks out there, and I'm not talking about you just for clarity, but I think overall you can see like the lad culture. I call it the lad yeah, culture. That's a good description. Um it's like those like peeps who are wearing shorts and sneakers and drink themselves to death every Friday. <laughs> yeah, those I don't vibe with at all, but I think there are some great folks out there as well. So I'm yeah, there are. hoping to find them. Yeah, point. yeah, I'm sure you will. Um, and I think speaking from my personal experiences growing up, trying to only have Pakeha friends because I didn't want to be Asian or I don't want to associate with Asians, but actually always feeling out of place for mm. a number of reasons and now surrounding myself with people who look like me or with who have shared backgrounds, regardless of how they look, is just so much better and there are things that you don't need to explain you just know it's just there's got to be something to be said about the comfort that that brings yeah yeah I wish I wish there were like more people who could understand where you're coming from and how you like behave and how it's like absolutely normal it's very like emotionally challenging to justify your actions every time when you're like around Pakeha friends yeah and I think that's the main like roadblock between, you know, like us and them and like that journey of our friendship. I find it very interesting. I don't know how much time we have left, by the way, but no, um, sorry. No, um, I just wanted to say that sometimes I find myself talking to a wall when I talk to Pakeha activists because I almost get that feeling that they listen only to reflect on their own experience as Pakeha activists and insert themselves in the conversation they don't belong in. And whether it's intentional or not, I have no idea, but there is something stopping me from being vulnerable with them only to hear back, oh, but like, how can we assist as a like Western Pakeha activists? And I'm like, do we really, are we on the same page here? Yeah, like, yeah. I, and I yeah. think that's that's definitely work that they need to do from their side um, yeah. to kind of realize where they're coming from and what they're actually saying when they respond like that. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't think it's intentional, but I think there's a lot of conversation to be held in those spaces of like them evaluating their privileges just like we are from like, our own diaspora's perspective and to just like stop for a second and just like listen um but yeah Yeah. it's a conversation that's gonna take like hundreds of years isn't it yeah exactly thank you so much for joining me today i feel like there is just so much more that we could talk about but that would take all day i think (laughs) it would be like a multi-part podcast episode but really appreciate your time and honestly like for someone so young like when i was 21 i don't even know if i had anything in my brain like (laughs) like the fact that you're so young and you're like recognizing all of these issues and like doing work to improve and to help those around you is really 
amazing and I really look forward to seeing what you do towards the future, into the future. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. A huge shout out to Maria for reaching out to me with her story and being so open to some fairly difficult questions. Remember, if you enjoyed this conversation, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow along on Instagram. Just search for Not Your Token Minority Podcast. Podcast.